Hey everybody, thanks for hanging out with me for just a couple of minutes. Here, our focus is being better and healthier than yesterday. Are you better? Are you healthier than you were yesterday? Here, we don't compare ourselves to him or to her. We compare ourselves to who we were yesterday. Self-improvement has no end. Health has no finish line. There are lifelong journeys where we take it one day at a time, and here we do it together. So let's do this. Before I get into the main content, if you want to get in contact with me, email and Instagram are the best ways to get in contact. Email me at benpagedc at gmail.com and on Instagram, benpagedc. And if you listen to this, go to Instagram, tag me on the episode, and I'll tag you right back and we get to know each other. I love to get to know the community and I would love to get to know you. So let's get on to the main content. Hey everybody, it's great to be back. A new episode. Today is May 24th, 2022, and today is episode 287. And today is an interview episode, which I haven't done for a long time. You're going to get the pleasure of listening to Robert Turner, who just came out with a new book called Lewis Mumford and the Food Fighters, A Food Revolution in America. Pretty neat conversation about food and how food is so important to our overall health and how we can better prepare ourselves in the future to make sure we have food sovereignty and food security for us and for our families. Hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to another episode of the Wellness Former Podcast. Today is the first time I've had a guest on for a little while, if you've noticed, but I'm super excited to have this guest on. We got in contact and his name is Robert Turner. We're going to be talking about his new book that's coming out soon, Lewis Mumford and the Food Fighters, a food revolution in America. I'm pretty, st- I'm pretty excited about this because as you know, food gardening is very therapeutic and it also helps us in times of when we are going through hard times. So before we get into this conversation, I want Robert just to kind of give us a little introduction so you as a listener can get to know him just a little bit better. Uh, Robert, glad to have you here. And what's that windy road of how you got to where you are today? Hey, Ben. Uh, thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's been uh, been windy, that's for sure. It's been hilly, up and down, and, and uh, uh, some crazy uh, uh, alternative routes here and there. But uh, so for a little background on, on, on me right now, you know, I, I write a column for a regional magazine called Eat Your View. It's always about the importance of sustainable food production and uh, local food production. Um, I've written a couple books on, on that subject, on sustainable food. Uh, I serve on the board for Organic Grower School, which uh, is probably in the Southeast here, the premier source of education on organic growing organic living thing. It's based in Asheville, North Carolina, where I'm, where I'm at. But uh, in the Southeast, um, we educate a lot of people on the importance of uh, growing sustainably. I also uh, serve on the board for the Land Conservation Advisory Board for Buncombe County. So we advise the county on land conservation issues and uh, do a lot to help another great organization in this area called Appalachian Sustainable Agriculture Project, which helps farmers farmers in the area um, build their business because uh, you can grow food but uh, you know to make a business out of it, you got to be able to sell it and that's where a lot of farmers need 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 help um, but you know I didn't come from a farming background I, I, I had a business background I was fortunate business had a couple companies sold, sold them and ended up buying uh, some farmland here in in um, western North Carolina Appalachia here and uh, bottom line on it, it, Ben, is that, you know, I've invested, you know, millions of dollars in farming only to discover that we need a, a, a better way. We need a better way to grow food. So that's, uh, that's a little bit about me. Oh, yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. I mean, the way we've been farming for the last what, 60, 70, 80 years, yeah. really in those last 
since Vietnam War. Wow, we're definitely killing the topsoil. Yeah. I really yeah. have some heroes in farming. I mean, Joel Salatin, I've read pretty much all of his books, and it's just crazy what he's been able to do in the last 30 years on where he's at in West Virginia. And there's other ones too, but he's the first one that comes to mind. But we definitely need to change what we're doing and how we're growing food on a large scale. And I believe even on a, on a small scale with a lot of these, you know, a lot of people, instead of putting everything back into the dirt and, and letting the dirt kind of build itself, they always bring in those chemicals, even at, even at the small garden. A lot of people are doing that. So, yeah, it's, it's scary what's going on. Um, you know, I, I like, I, I tell the story a lot and some of the, you know, older listeners, older folks like me, you know, if you're in your fifties or sixties, you'll, you'll remember this, what I'm about to say, you know, I remember as a kid driving down the road with my father, and counting the number of bugs that hit the windshield, you know, it was uh, like 15, 20 of them and all these bright colors of red, yellow and green, you know, and it was like a Jackson Pollock painting, all these splatterings of color on the windshield. And I, and I drive down that same stretch of road today and, and there are no bugs, you know, and I think a lot of people my age, and, you know, will remember this, will say, you're right. You know, when I say this to people, they're like, you're right. I remember all the bugs. If we drove on the highway for more than four hours, you dad had to pull over to clean the windshield. I mean, and so the fact is that we have in North America about 45% fewer insects flying around and in the ground, you know, uh, than, than the 1960s. And related to that, we have uh, 70, excuse me, 30% fewer birds flying over our heads. Um, so it's all related to this, as you mentioned, this chemically intensive industrial farming system that we've come up with. You know, we used to think DDT was bad, but, you know, the chemicals now that we're using, some scientists say, are 50 times more deadly. Bugs. And, it's, and it's not killing just the bad bugs, it's killing all the bugs. I mean, most people are familiar with what's going on with honeybees, you know. And, but, you know, monarch butterflies, we have 80% fewer monarch butterflies in California from all the insecticides. So, yeah, we're looking at a bug apocalypse. And there's a guy, uh, he's a famous Harvard entomologist named H.O. E.O. Wilson, who, who put it pretty succinctly. He said, without insects, um, all animal life would perish from the earth. And he said it would happen fairly quickly within a few months. So you can't take this huge chunk at the bottom of the food chain, you know, out of the system and think everybody above it's going to be okay. It's it's risky times, and we need to we need to find uh, you know better ways to uh, grow food without blasting the fields with some of the chemicals. We'll probably get a little bit into that as we go into this get into this conversation. But it's funny that I've never really thought about the insect part. I know there's herbicides everywhere, but I'm always talking about the microorganisms that are in the soil that are dying yeah. also. But at the same time, that's so true. I mean, the, those insects are a very important part in this cycle of life. Yeah. And as you see, yeah, we have one specific chemical that is killing that one very important part of the cycle of life. Even though, even though most people don't like bugs <laughs> and they can be annoying, they are a very important part of the cycle of life. And that is really neat to hear someone, I've never had it said that way. And that's very interesting. To, and I hope everyone that's listening realizes that you know, bugs have their, also have their part in the cycle of life. And we need to treat them in a way that where they can also participate in the cycle of life. Um, I, I remember my, just my garden last year, I decided, I don't, I mean, this just comes off the top of my head, but I decided I'm not going to worry about any of the bugs. I'll let them do whatever they got, whatever they got to do. If they take my plants, they take my plants. Because <laughs> I'd, I'd been fighting this, uh, that red spider mite on my tomatoes for the last three years. It's like, I'm not going to do it anymore. Mm-hmm. What I did is I just let them go. I would, I would, I would just water down the leaves every once, but I did that anyway. I mean, I'd water the leaves every once in a while and I'd water the plants but I let the I let the spider mite do what it did. I took about two bushels of tomatoes, and then the plant was gone. And I replanted. Um, but I just I I mean I just decided to let the let the bugs do what they're going to do. And as I built soil life, and I built yeah. whatever the whatever those plants needed around, 
that spider mite would eventually leave. Unfortunately, we weren't able to stay in that little plot of land where I was at to see the progress. But yeah. even even the ants, I mean, I had ants take my carrots. I mean, those beautiful carrot stalks, all of a sudden they were gone in one night. Yeah. I was like, well, that's what happens. Um, and I decided not to fight them. I, I got a lot of other produce, but but ants and that red spider mite took my tomatoes and my, and my carrots. And that was fine. That was fine for me because I understand that they're also part of this cycle of life. And that's interesting that I, that I did that. And now hearing this from you is it, 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 it makes sense. It definitely makes sense. Yeah. You know, there is this cycle, right? So, so you know, there's these systems, these ecosystems, you know, it's a biosphere and you can't pull out one part of it. Uh, you know, the problem with modern agriculture is we're, like I said, we're killing everything. It, well, first of all, 30% of our food come, it requires insects for pollination, a third of our food. So, you know, when you go killing all the bugs, you don't just kill the pests, you're killing the predator bugs, the ladybugs, and uh, all, all, there's a lot of bugs that eat other bugs. Um, and, and so what we're creating here in the United States and in some parts of the world, but particularly here, um, you know, we're blasting these fields with so many chemicals that um, we killed off all the predators. You know, and these, these are food products, foods, that, that these particular bugs, let's say it's a boll weevil uh, and cotton, you know, he, he was attracted to these monocultures, these massive monocultures that stretch for miles or could corn in the Midwest, you attract certain bugs that particularly like that food. Uh, then you go blast in the, the field. Well, you kill a lot of those bugs, but there's so many, you're not going to kill all of them. And, but you've also killed all the predator bugs. And so you've given this one species of insect the opportunity to uh, you know have a smorgasbord because there's no predator bugs coming after them, and uh, then they develop resistance to pesticides, and then you really you really got a problem. But um, yeah, yeah, it's it's building soil health, like you say. I mean, that's give the plant a fighting chance, and um, that's the most important thing: building building soil health, and you know, related to that. Ben, you know, I talk a lot about you know the loss of topsoil, and I know you're very familiar with that that subject, but, you know, I've, I've read some research recently, incorporated some of it in my book that says that, well, the UN, first of all, the Food and Agriculture Organization of the UN says that we have um, 60 years of topsoil loss. That's 60 harvests, you know. The average corn farmer in the Midwest, and I talk about those guys a lot in the book, um, you know, they lose a, a ton of topsoil per ton of corn they pull off the field because they're just not using cover crops in the winter. Primarily they're overtilling and then they're not using cover crops and all that topsoil is just blowing away and washing away. And, and uh, so it's averaging about four or five tons of topsoil per acre that we're losing. And um, that can't go on forever. So, uh, you know, building the soil health and keeping the soil in place is, you know, some of the, two of the most important things we can do. I was uh, I was listening to I think it was Jack Spierko the other day, and he was saying the number one export of the United States is topsoil. Yeah, and it's <laughs> not that we're it's not that we're exporting it on ships; it's flying into the water or in where it's going. We're it's leaving, yeah. but it's not coming back. And the, and to build soil back takes a lot of time. Um, if we're not involved, it takes hundreds of years, maybe. Once if we get involved, we can, we can do it a little bit faster. But yeah. well, a lot faster. But it takes a lot of time to build that up. And I remember you talking about Midwest. I went to I went to college in Iowa, so mm. I would I would drive from Davenport to Ames. And I would see 180 miles of corn. That's all I yeah. saw. The whole trip yeah. from, from Davenport to Ames was 180 miles of, of cornfields. I was like, this is so crazy. I mean, you have to be there to, to, to understand that because it's, it's, it's hard to believe it was just 180. And that's just, that's just that one strip of land. I mean, it's 180 miles. And I don't think I saw, it must have been 90% corn. <laughs> it, was, it was incredible. I mean, yeah. well, I'm glad you brought that up. You know, I talk about that and something else in the book um, that that uh, nobody's talking about this. I don't know why not. I brought it up in my book and I've written a couple articles on it. But you know, the Corn Belt is a massive thing. You know, it's a thousand miles wide. It's it's from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, over to uh, say the middle of Nebraska, like Grand 
Grand Isle in Nebraska. It's literally a thousand miles wide. It's, it's from Minneapolis down to St. Louis, roughly, another 500 miles north south. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a massive thing. Then there's some 300,000 corn farmers who grow about 350 million tons of corn every year. That's about one ton for every citizen in the US. That's 2,000 pounds. The average citizen only eats about you know, 2% of that. Or I, think, uh, I think the average citizen eats about 20 pounds, mostly in the form of high fructose corn syrup. We don't eat a lot of it on the corn, on the cob, or on the can, average citizen. So, so it comes to, to my mind, you know, and I hear like the General Motors has said that by the year 2035, they're going to stop producing electric vehicles. Ford's put out information like that. That came on the heels of Biden, President Biden saying that uh, he's transitioning all federal vehicles to electric um, now, starting now. So it brings the question, what are, what are we going to do with all this corn? You know, here, here's the thing. So 40% so of the U.S. corn crop goes in our gas tank, right? In the form of ethanol by federal mandate, 10% of, uh, you know, gasoline needs to be uh, ethanol. So, so I don't know many industries that can handle a 40% drop in, um, in demand, you know, when, when cars do transition to electric. So what are these guys going to do? It's a, it's a, Sticky question. Oh yeah, and <laughs> that's just, and, and and it makes you wonder. I mean, what's what's the whole what's the whole reason behind all of that, and why why so rushed to go to electric cars all of a sudden? Um, I mean, I, it's funny. I just came back to the states a couple of weeks ago, but the, it's the incredible the amount of electric cars I see. I mean, I mean, even where I'm at, and I've been told that other places there's there's a lot more electric cars. Yeah, we've been through this kind of disruption here in Appalachia, interestingly enough, you know, that, that um, you know, we saw a huge drop in demand for burly tobacco. This was tobacco country here where I'm at, Western North Carolina, the heart of Appalachia. I mean, all, all the farms were growing burly tobacco. And then with the fall of big tobacco and all the subsidies or the incentives from the tobacco companies went away. Uh, we saw here a 97% drop in uh, in the number of farms producing tobacco. We saw acres drop by 95% and revenue drop by 96%. I mean, it was devastation. And that's what it looks like when you're dependent on a single crop, like the Midwest is dependent on corn and they rotate some soybeans in there too. But, but um, you know, uh, what came out of that, that, uh, Turmoil was an organization that I mentioned earlier, ASAP, Appalachian Sustainable Agriculture Project, who saw this coming, saw this, you know, this, this happening and work with farmers and help them market, grow and market new products so that, you know, there was all of a sudden a 95% increase in the number of sweet potatoes and potatoes and other vegetables that were grown. So we so ASAP helped them transition to new products, but helped them find markets for them. So that today, you know, this is back in the late 90s, early 2000s. So today, you know, Asheville, North Carolina is considered this big foodtopia, um, you know, where, where all the restaurants downtown promote local food. They have, you know, mentioned it on their menu. Sometimes they even have a picture of the farmer on the menu, you know promote this local food thing and our farmers markets are thriving we have several of them there's a lot of csa community sport agriculture projects and uh, um, so yeah so we, we do have a, a you know a more um self-sustaining area here we can feed ourselves a little bit more because of the turmoil that came and so hopefully that will be what happens in the midwest that we'll start you know having more pasture-raised beef on these farms instead of growing corn to ship, up, ship off the beef cows in another state, you know, maybe they'll have some cows there that they just feed grass to. And maybe farmers will learn to, you know, grow vegetables again, like they used to, you know, and they'll be able to feed cities like Chicago and Minneapolis and St. Louis. Because right now, as you know, from Iowa, you know, 95% of food people eat in, in Iowa and in Illinois comes from outside the state. It's imported. They don't grow anything. It's a food desert, in essence. So hopefully, you know, this will be um, an incentive to people, you know, to grow regionally.
it's it's kind of like it's kind of like the hope it's like that hope where um where you saw that opportunity and a lot of and that's what's neat about life a lot of times our trials bring bring great benefits to our lives in the future i mean so it could be a great way to help help the this dying land come back to life by putting cows and 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 put and letting them let them, letting them eat what they're supposed to eat grasses right. <laughs> that would be nice instead of them eating corn that just makes them unhealthy and sick and fat they can actually eat grasses where they can be healthy and live a long life and enjoy the sun on their back and maybe that can't maybe that'll maybe that'll be the push that actually forces them to do it because right. i personally well what i let's see i was watching sean baker the other day and in the amount of the amount of uh, uh on google that are looking for vegan diets has gone way down compared to meat eating diets i mean it's gone way up so the so so the whole the whole uh demand for meat personally what i can see is it's probably going up quite a bit and we're seeing and i can see as a, a demand at least in in the completely vegan maybe eating some meat and vegetables but the vegan diet is actually from what i saw is going the demand of looking on Google is going down quite a bit. So maybe that'll be a great way to bring meat back into the life to, to our, to our diet, which I believe is incredibly important. Me personally, uh, the more I study about nutrition, the more I, I, I tell people meat is probably the most nutritious thing you're ever going to eat, including organs, tendons, and all the other stuff that comes with the animal. Um, so that, to me, that sounds like that could be a great hope and, 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 and we'll see what happens in the future. Yeah. The current system is messed up, you know, to, to, to blast our, our Midwestern, you know, corn belt with so many chemicals that end up washing into the rivers and the Mississippi and end up in the Gulf of Mexico, you know, to grow all this corn, to feed all these animals where 40% goes in our gas tank, another roughly like 38% goes to animal feed. So we're growing up, you know, blasting the fields with these chemicals to grow corn, soybeans, to feed the animals in, you know, Nebraska or wherever those those uh, confined animal feed operations are at. Um, it's just not a healthy thing for people or the planet by in any shape or form. I mean, cables are really not a healthy place for animals to be raised. They need to be raised eating grass on pasture as God designed them, and they're supposed to. You know that's where they're supposed to be, and they do. You know, if you if you rotate them on those pastures, you know, Alan Savoy, 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 several people I can never get that name right, but he's one of the pioneers in uh, showing how you know putting cattle on on land can actually regenerate the land in a big way, and he's done that in places like you know desertified areas of uh, of Africa and other places. So, so uh, you know, animals, cows. Buffalo, all these these uh, ruminants evolved with grasses, you know, on the plains. And there's this mutual benefit to the grasses and the animals if it's done right. You can't sit, let them stay in the same patch and eat it down to nothing, you know. Um, but just like, you know, migrating animals, they, they come in a big herd, they eat it down, but then they move on and they don't show up back on that same patch till they make their rounds again, you know. So, um, you know, we're starting to learn that we do that on our farm. We rotate, we have an intensive rotational system to awesome. move the cows around. Yeah, I'm that glad. works. And I'm glad you have a farm. I can't wait till I get mine. <laughs> yeah. I'm in the I'm in the process of well, not in the process. I can't wait. I mean, it's something on the list of things to do. Um, but so, I mean, yeah, we know there's lots of stuff going on that's not good. But there are some things that are coming along that are good and hopefully what we were just talking about that's another hope maybe that that'll change things around we can see more of that but you, you talk a lot about like the food and the coming health care and the health the, the health the health care crisis and i think that would be a great thing to talk about right now too because my podcast really deals a lot with health and how we can simplify health so what do you see as is as this coming health care crisis with with food well right now According to the CDC, 40% of our kids can expect type 2 diabetes. For children of color, it's 50%. That's half. 70% you know, of the U.S. population is overweight. You know, and, and and countries like you know these developing nations like China and India and Central and South America are following our lead. You know, with this 
eating these high calorie, high sugar, um, unhealthy diets and snacking all the time. And so, um, you know, it's unfortunate what's what's going on, but but this all started in the 1950s with the TV dinner. You know, it was when it was by design, Ben. I mean, it, it, there is this concentration of power that has occurred in my lifetime. And, you know, since the 50s and 60s, where, where we've concentrated power uh, within very few large corporations and they've taken over, um, you know, and, and, uh, and they've gone global. So that, um, now here's, here's a couple examples. Like in the 1950s, the farmer made 50 cents on the retail food value. Today, she makes about 14 cents and the rest is taken by the guy in the middle, the processor, the distributor, and the marketing. Um, and they're keeping farmers, these you know, corporations who now control most of the seeds, most of the inputs a farmer needs. You know, there's four companies that control most of the beef in this country. 85% um, of the meat is controlled by four companies and two of them are foreign owned. One is JBS. Uh, from Brazil, and the other is a Chinese company that purchased Smithfield not long ago. So that one out of four pigs in this country is owned by this Chinese company. Um, people here eat, you know, this one always kind of amazes me when I, when I talk about, you know, this constant, this, this globalized system that we've, these multinational corporations have created. But, um, you know, it's really, it's come to the point where, for instance, you eat 10 pounds of meat, from a foreign country and you have no idea where it came from you know so that's enough you do the math like that's in quarter pounders that's like 40 quarter pounders that's enough quarter pounders for one a day every day for a month and you have no idea where it came from and and that's by design i mean that's that's um you know the guy behind the curtain is making sure that there are no uh country of origin labeling laws cool laws yeah, there has to be a country of origin law, label on everything you buy, you know, everything, except for the important stuff that you put in your body. So that's got to change, you know, but, but um, you know, we, we got to kind of, a, 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 so, so we got a taste of the ramifications of this when you concentrate power when COVID hit, and I could talk about that in a minute, but what's, what's happened is these large multinational corporations there's 10 of them, in fact, that control most of the, over 60% of the food in the grocery stores. And it's on our website, eatreview.com, if you wanna check it out. But um, so, so these 10 companies control all the center aisles of the grocery store. And, um, and they're determining what we're all having for dinner tonight. And so what we need to do is kind of relearn the old ways, learn to grow some food yourself, you know, in your backyard. You know, I think every kid should go on a farm tour uh, while they're in school, at least one time, you know, the kids are so, they're, they're just, uh, they don't really, uh, you know, they're, they don't really know anything about food, where it comes from, it kind of magically shows up at the grocery store, but a lot of people are like that. I, I tell a story, if we have time, I can talk about um, you know, the story, of, uh, my first book that came out was called uh, Carrots Don't Grow on Trees, and um, <laughs> so why did I name a book, <laughs> Carrots Don't Grow on Trees, the subtitle was Building Sustainable and Resilient Communities, but that comes from, we, you know, we like to have kids out to our farm for a farm tour. And we, were, we had a group of, I think they were like third graders once. And um, so before they got there, um, I like to do these tours myself because it gives me a chance to mess with their heads. And so before they got there, I tied some parrots to a couple of maple trees that were by the garden. And when we started the tour, you know, we walked by the trees, they put it out. I said, there it is kids, the carrot tree. And nobody questioned it. Nobody questioned it. I mean, it was, apples grow on trees. Why not? <laughs> you know? So a little while later, we were going through the garden and I pulled some carrots out of the dirt and I watched all these noses start to scrunch up. And these kids were, why did they eat spring? The food came out of the dirt like that. You know, I think they preferred carrots from trees because they were cleaner. But it, it just shows, you know, it goes to show how we're all a little disconnected from our food. And the point is that was by design. Big Brother and food does not want you to know where your food comes from. You know, it's a dirty, messy business. And they they want to they they don't want you to know you know where it comes from, how it got to you. So we need to reconnect. Is the point. Yeah. It, it's it's a, it's a way to keep us sick. 
I mean, in yeah. the, sick, the sicker we are, the more dependent we are on them. So right. if we, if our food supply is 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 like you say, those center those center aisles, the aisles that I recommend no one buy anything from, they're owned by sixty percent. I mean, sixty percent of all that is owned by yeah. That's that's, that's and it. companies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And companies. And so those are the aisles I tell everyone to avoid. If you're going to go to the supermarket, stay in the outskirts uh, and, and and hang out there and buy food there. But right. yeah, it's 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 a it's it's a sad it's sad. But at, as you say, it's been planned over time. I've read books right. from 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 the 50s and the 60s where they were talking about it, and and. And it's just getting worse and worse and worse as we go along. And as you say, it, it is, I believe it's also planned because it is a way to make a lot of money, but a yeah. lot of money. And not only in the food industry, but in the in the medical industry too. There's companies that are making billions of dollars with all the medication that needs to be taken for these poor people that get sick by eating all this food that is so unhealthy. So there's a lot of money be, to be made in, in, this, in, in this system, this circular system where food, agriculture, food, agriculture, medicine, and government's all involved, for sure. Right. Diabetes wow. is a very expensive thing to treat, you know, and we're all going to pay dearly in the long term through higher health care costs, you know, and, you know, what a lot of these kids are looking at now, you know, they're looking at, you know, potential for blindness and lost limbs and shorter lives. And, and you know, we need to, we need to take back control of our food. So this this current book that you know is out now. That's that's kind of what it's about. It's about a group of rebel food fighters trying to take back control. It's a pretty awesome. radical book, and it's, it's hey. radical, man. I mean, <laughs> there's <laughs> radicals in this book, but they're all real characters. And hey. you know, it's about this group of people here in in Appalachia who had it. So let's so let's get a little bit into this. We had we had a little break there, but we're back now. Um, let's get a little bit into into your book now and and talk a, a, some of who are these food fighters and what are they doing to help us uh, get back to eating nutrient dense food and all that stuff that we need to do as humans to stay healthy. Sure. So so the real characters. I had to change the name on a couple couple of the characters to. Uh, Take the privacy a little bit, you know. They're private people, but um, it's all based on real people, and and um, you know, it's it's a it's a diverse group um, from Western North Carolina who who are working to um, to like I said, take back control of their of their own food, you know, their food system, and and you know, I talk a lot about some of the you know, I bring up some of the the hard you know negative stuff about the current food system, you know, but I didn't, I didn't want to create a book that just, you know, uh, scared people. And, and, um, and so you just get frustrated and you throw the book in the corner and give up and say, we're all done for, you know? So uh, there is hope at the end, stay, stay with the book. And, and I think they're some of the more interesting characters you'll find in, in nonfiction. Um, it's everybody from, you know, people at the farmer's market, the, the small, small growers, you know, there's a lot of small farmers here in Appalachian, the mountains kind of determine how big a farm can be and what you can grow and how you can grow it here. You know, it's not like we have these massive thousand acre farms here, like you see in the Midwest, the, the hills and valleys kind of really determine the type of agriculture you can have here. And there's a lot of smaller farms. There's a lot of people farming on a half acre, you know, or an acre and selling at the farmer's market and you know, trying to make a living or at least supplement their income. They're, they're all food fighters. There's people who shop at Whole Foods. There's people who, when they go to the restaurant, you know, they ask for uh, local food. They, 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 they thank the chef for sourcing local food. Send a little message back to the kitchen saying, thank you, you know. Um, they, they, they're the people who ask their grocers you know, to source more local food. And so there's a lot of ways to be a, a food fighter. And, 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 you know, the food fighters in my book, some of them take it a little bit, a little bit further. And I don't want to spoil the book for anybody, but it's fun. I think it's a fun, interesting read. And, um, and, and you know, hopefully you learn something. One of the things I've mentioned, uh, one of the people that, you know, I had a chance to interview for this book. Mike McConnell is the former director of national intelligence under the Bush administration. He happens to live not far from me. And he's actually, 
a good guy and, and uh, very intelligent man. And we had several conversations and uh, I met him at a press conference. We were invited to speak, he and I, about this subject. And, and well, before that event happened, I had a chance to ask Mike, I said, you know, hey, what can you tell me about food sovereignty and food security? Things we're talking about here today. And um, he said, uh, told me one story about how the UK had come to him as director of national intelligence and said, look, we're not sure we're getting straight on this. You know, we think numbers might be skewed a little bit because people are worried that, you know, this is part of Brexit. When Brexit happens, you know, it's going to create food shortages and, and problems at the border as food has to go through customs and things. And so just give us a snapshot on what you think about our food sovereignty or food security from an outside perspective. So Mike has people look into it and he, he determined that uh, the UK is nine meals away from chaos and food riots in the streets. Not nine days, nine meals. He said they're so dependent on food from faraway places like from Italy and Spain that um, you know if something were to happen to stop those container ships coming across the English Channel then you know UK would be in serious trouble quickly and you know we're not he said this, we're not that serious here but we do import a lot of our food you know we import well, the USDA says very soon, within a few years, we'll import 75% of our fruit, half of our vegetables. And the big part of that is, you know, these multinational corporations, if they can grow pepper cheaper in Peru, that's what they're going to do. That's just business. That's the way it is, you know. And, you know, the fact is um, a farm laborer in Mexico is paid $8 a day. That's a fact. Not $8 an hour, $8 a day. So me as a small farmer, I don't know how to compete with that. You know, but I do know that we need to do some things to to because it's a risky world out there. You know, we need to take back some control at the local and regional level. And I think every community everywhere around the planet needs to be thinking, trying to do what they can to improve their own food security and food sovereignty because stuff happens. Man. We had, you know, when we had the colonial pipeline shut down here that long ago, was that six months? I can't remember, it wasn't that long ago, you know? That's the pipeline that feeds uh, the, whole, the whole East Coast. And um, so when that shut down, you know, food, food prices went up quickly and their shortages happened quickly, um, you know? And, and um, if, uh, if, if something else had happened, uh, it could have been devastating, you know? What surprises me, like when Katrina hit, here, ben, you know, Katrina came through and took out oil refineries in in uh, in uh, you know the Texas area and Louisiana, and so quickly we were out of food here. It amazed me how quickly we were out of food here in in, uh, in Western North Carolina. I mean, the gas stations they shut down for weeks, and if anybody heard there was gas, you know, lines you know lined up for hours to get gas. But I mean, it was within like two or three days. Grocery stores were thinning out the shelves are getting empty and it's scary to see that man part of that was hoarding but part of it, when those trucks stopped and i told this to mike and mike mcconnell said you know that's right bob people think there's like a warehouse of food in the back of the grocery store there's not it's all out front man and if those trucks stop running overnight you know things then quickly so we're just it's just a risky world you know um and we need to protect our own interests a little bit so we don't have to grow everything you know we, we, we are never going to, you know, grow our own coffee. So what are we going to do? Not have coffee? That's crazy talk. Man. <laughs> so you just, but we can grow some things and we can remember how to do it. And that's the key, you know, is to, to grow something, what we can, you know, so that we keep that technology, that the land, the farmland, and, you know, the knowledge uh, of growing our own food, you know. And a lot of a lot of times, a lot of times it starts from people that don't know anything, and that's why it's so important to start small and just start with something simple. But yeah, we need to. I totally agree. I mean, we all should be growing something, okay. and if we have the opportunity raising something, if we could raise an animal and actually put it on the land, it's only going to make that land more fertile. Yeah. And if we could slowly bring that back into our communities, yeah, our health will improve 
dramatically just by just by growing some of your own food. I remember when my kids were little. Um, I don't eat them much anymore, but we had these cherry tomato plants, and they ate those like candy. I mean, they would go out and pick those like candy. They don't do it anymore because we don't have them on the vine. If we buy them, they won't do them. But when it was outside on the vine, they would pick them off and eat them just like they were. And, yeah. we can, and so if we could bring some of that back, we will see a huge change, not just physically, but I think emotionally when people start to see like, wow, we can actually be part of this. We can be sovereign. We can have food security if I just do this little bit. And then as a community grows, health will just flourish. And I think that's so true. And the more we do that, the more we do it at a local level, like you're saying, the more secure we will be. And I believe that just like you, it can go away just like that. So we have to be looking. That's, and that's why I talk about gardening so much too. It's, 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 it's a way to de-stress in, in many ways, not just the de-stress of normal life, but it, it's a way to decrease stress if we do have a crisis. Because if we come home, we know there's going to be something in the shelves because we grew it last year right i mean so it's 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 a beautiful way to to stay in the present moment and and decrease that stress of life but it helps also decrease decrease stress when life becomes very stressful because we're going through some type of crisis and the majority of people that go through crises it might be might be a job loss or maybe it won't be something huge but a job loss is a big crisis for a lot of people and if they know they have food in the to eat they can plan and be in a way that's a lot more logical to how they're going to make more money so yeah, I totally, I totally agree with you. And, and I mean, so how, how do we, how do we do that? I mean, there's a question you always, how do we invest in the future of the food? How can we do that? Right. Well, you know, it starts, as you say, grow a tomato in a pot on your balcony. If you live in an apartment, you know, uh, grow some basil, just get into, you know, start building those skills, you know, and, and, uh, you know, start shopping at the farmer's market. That's a great first step for a lot of people, you know, that we can, you know, it's just a terrific place to learn more about different vegetables, to talk to your farmer. And, you know, farmers are always thrilled to talk about their produce, how they grow it, how to cook it, how to prepare it. And, um, uh, you know, so that's just a, a whole, opens up a whole world of food to people. Just go to the farmer's market. It's a great way to spend the Saturday morning, you know, or, whenever yours is and they're everywhere you know there used to be that's one really positive sign there's several positive signs that are out there you know that there's now um i believe it's over ten thousand farmers markets across the united states when you know uh, less than two decades ago it was like 1500 so farmers markets are popping up everywhere community sport agriculture programs where people buy a share from the farmer at the beginning of the season and then pick up uh box of fresh vegetables every week from the farm or some central location. Now those have exploded. There's tens of thousands of those across the United States. The National Restaurant Association says that number one trend in restaurants today is local food. So people are asking for it. They want their, you know, we're trying, I believe sustainability, you know, is going to go way beyond electric vehicles and green homes. I think it's going to be, you know, sustainability to the point of self-reliance, you know, that a lot of people are going to see the value not only that you know you can see how your food is grown you can know your farmer and you can see that they're not blasting the field with chemicals you know it's under the watchful eye of the consumer um but i think people will see the value you know that is thousands of miles fresher you know and appreciate that because this produce does lose nutrients you know as it travels you know the average vegetable those travels from you know some 1500 miles to get to your grocery store that's a fact that's like the distance from new york to dallas and and uh you know it was grown primarily to handle that transportation not for flavor or taste but to handle the transport so that's the kind of food we're eating and people you know when they start eating you know pasture raised uh, uh you know chicken eggs or meat or you know, fresh vegetables from, you know, close by, you know, they, they get it. They understand the difference in the taste. Most people have never had a fresh raised chicken egg. You know, they don't, they don't, they can't believe how bright yellow the yolks are, you know, and how, how different they taste, how much taste there actually is. You know, store-bought eggs are so 
land. That's an animal. That's something you can raise. A lot of people raise in suburban towns, you know, a few chickens and just, uh, you know, start getting, uh, getting some fresh eggs from it. But, you know, there's, there's a lot of things that positive signs out there that some really good things are happening. You know, the regenerative agriculture, you know, the organic, it goes by the different names, but people, you know, they're all generally the same thing, you know, is, is, is uh, no, no chemicals, uh, limiting the chemicals anyway, and, and, and uh, proving the, the health of the soil through composts. And, you know, um, that, that's the key, the microbes in the soil, you know, as you know, and there's like, you know, I've heard different facts, but there's like more, more microbes in a tablespoon of soil than all the people who have ever lived on the planet. <laughs> I heard also that more than people who are on the planet right now, but you know, it's just hard to count when you get that small, right? There's billions of them though. And, and uh, those are the key to the healthy food is that the mycorrhizal fungi and the microbes in the soil. So if people start to do that themselves, putting their hands in the soil, first of all, there's also evidence that, that makes you healthier with the, in contact with those bacteria, that fungi in the soil, actually gets absorbed in your body and you need it. You know, three pounds of your gut, I think is, is uh, bacteria microbes that help keep you alive, help you digest that food. So, um, you know, there is definitely health benefits of just doing that physical activity of garden. But, oh, yeah. um, but there's, there's a lot more uh, to it, you know. Yeah, I actually, I actually wrote a book just about that. <laughs> so there's a, there's a, I have a, it's crazy what the garden can do and what microorganisms do to you and keep you alive. When you were talking about that whole, uh, the trend of buying uh, locally grown or ecological or eco-friendly. Um, yeah, I was, cause I have a, I have a comfrey cell that's coming out really soon. So I'm really studying into that. And 85, 85% of people that were polled will say they would be willing to spend just a little bit more to buy something that's eco-friendly. So yeah, it's, it's a trend that's definitely going up because the conference salve I'm going to be selling is going to be eco-friendly and not only it's casing, but how it's made. Yeah. And, and yeah, the trend is definitely going up and that's a positive sign because more and more people are waking up to what, what's been going on for the last 60, 70 years and they're slowly, and it's starting to roll just a little bit faster. And once we get a little bit more momentum, it's going to keep on going faster and faster and faster. And we'll see how this thing changes. I, I'm pretty, I can, I'm pretty positive about what, what I, what I see, what's going on and what you're talking about, how it's exploding farmers markets people what they're looking for and stuff like that so i see it i see it coming too it's coming slowly at the moment but the trend is that people will not only for food sovereignty but for food security they're going to be doing this because it's this it's it eventually will have to be done so the faster we can start now the better and the better people right. will be in overall health if they do this so i i appreciate coming on uh, i had a great yeah. had a great conversation with you and and again robert this was a uh, a, a great i had a great time so what what I did too. How, how can people find the book where did they where can they get the book <clears throat> well hopefully you'll look at your local independent bookstore first it's available wherever they can certainly order for you if they don't have the shelf but it'll be available also on amazon and barnesandnoble.com right now it's there so uh that's where they can they can find it and um, being forewarned, you know, the book begins with a plot to kill El Tigre. And I can't tell you more than that, but the, the opening sentence is this. One time I had to kill a guy. And then I think that's the best opening sentence in any nonfiction book ever written. That's not <laughs> just because I wrote that sentence. I think it's, <laughs> but yeah, so hopefully they enjoy. Hopefully it's a good read, you know, and that they learn something. And I think you will learn something. There's a lot of well again thanks a lot for coming on robert it was a great conversation about health food and how we can be be sovereign and free in our food consumption you bet thank you ben well i hope you enjoyed that conversation with robert before i let you all go i just need to remind you that this is a movement that only happens between us this is not going to go mainstream. They do not want it to go mainstream. This is a movement where we grow one person at a time. And a great way you can help us grow that one person at a time is by leaving a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to this podcast. But in iTunes, you can go to the Wellness Farmer podcast at the bottom there. It's a button to rate and review the show, and it's so simple. I read each and every one, and I appreciate it more than you know. 
If you want to join my email list, I you will never miss an episode, and you'll also get a book I wrote for f- for free, Earth and Us, Hill Naturally. A great way to support me is by buying my books. So I have a couple books on my website, Playing in the Dirt, The Four Pillars of Health, and a short ebook called Mental Well-Being Made Simple. If you buy them from my website, and you're in the States right now, and if you use the code GIFT, you will even get a bigger discount if you buy two books or more. So if you need a, if you need a, someone to give a gift to, this is probably one of the best long-lasting gifts there are. Learn how to improve your health naturally. You can also get the Four Pillars of Health and Playing in the Dirt on Amazon.com, so you can also get them there. And join my membership. It's where we go so much more deeper into how we bring the garden and our connection to nature and earth into the forefront of our journey for greater health and well-being. It's a great way to come together and build community. And if you haven't joined yet, now is the time. Go to pastelsbetterthisforum.com slash subscription. I am also super excited to announce that I have a new product out. It's a comfrey salve called Consuela. And right now it's in pre-order form up until this Friday. And there's only going to be 50 available to pre-order. So also go to my webpage, pastosvetodisform.com. Go to shop, pre-order one of those salves, and you will be you will be able to help your body heal physically faster from all those scrapes and bumps and falls and bruises that we get throughout life and, of course, your kids. <laughs>